At times like this, I find myself reflecting on the privilege of education, especially in a time where we have a sense in North America of a, of a kind of time of entitlement about education. And sometimes when we sense entitlement, we forget the incredible responsibility and the incredible gift that education is. An opportunity which so many in the global south do not have. I sit on the board of the Middle East Institute and an Arab Baptist seminary in Beirut, Lebanon. It's a fascinating place because there's three Tyndale graduates that give strategic leadership there. In fact, one is the president, Eli Haddad. And I often find myself in awe of the students who have sacrificed so much from so many countries in the Middle East to come to Beirut and to study there. In fact, I shared this, this summer one night when I was so overcome by what I was experiencing as I was teaching with them, and I went back to my room and couldn't sleep. And I found myself reflecting on the eagerness that they felt about education and the sense of privilege that they have. We have so much to learn from these Christians in the Middle East who sometimes feel abandoned even by their Western brothers and sisters who are so focused on protecting Israel that they've forgotten that they have sisters and brothers, Arab Christians, in Jordan, in Syria, in Iraq, and Iran, let alone other places in the Middle East. And these people, these students that come, have this deep respect for what they're entering into. They're not consumed with the entitlement, but they're consumed with a sense of the privilege. I remember attending an in-service teacher's program in Kenya. It was run by the real Dr. Nelson, Dr. Carla Nelson, who heads the, the teacher's program, the B.Ed. program here. And one of the Canadian teachers that had come over had brought with him a number of Petri dishes from a biology class that they were going to throw away. And, and he wondered if they could be at use in, in Kenya, in one of the schools there, where supplies are so rare. In her thesis, she writes the story of this person who hands these Petri dishes to a biology teacher that was in the program. And it was like a sacred gift. She describes the picture of them driving away on a bus, going back to his school, holding these Petri dishes in his lap, almost as if they're gold. To you who are the new students, and to you who are the vets, this is what we feel as a faculty and a staff and administration. As we face you this morning and during our classes, you have launched yourself into this amazing journey of discovery, of change, of challenge and transformation. And it's a privilege. In a world and a society that is increasingly hostile to the idea of a Christ, taking Christian faith seriously, to a people of faith competing with all of the deep and broken themes of our society that is so powerfully sold to us in the media. The call of the people of faith is to learn to live faithfully, engaged in this world of chaos and a society challenged to live truthfully.
and you have the privilege of being able to study at a university that takes faith seriously. You have the privilege of studying at a seminary whose reputation in North America is very powerful. You have come to this place called Tyndale. In truth, this school has many names, and it has had many names over 120 years, but its focus and its challenges never wavered. It has a rich history and a tradition of which you are now being part. This place called Tyndale, a place where the idea of intellectual, spiritual, emotional, and relational formation is taken seriously. A place where we challenge students to think, to think, to stretch their ability to analyze and to critically reflect, not just on the topic at hand, but on the world in which they are living. A place where we call you to live a life of character and foundational virtues. Think about it. A Christian university and a missionally shaped seminary that believes that the development of the mind is not enough and therefore is committed to the forming of the soul, the nurturing of the depth of character. We want you to be different when you leave here. We want you to be able to think critically about our world, not, as I've said other times, simply to point out what is wrong with it, but to enter into it and transform it. We emphasize themes of intellectual knowledge, a formed spirituality, a personal development, but because of our strong conviction in these next years that people of faith will need to develop an inner strength, a resilience in a world that is desperate for the kind of character that is integrous, that is truthful, that is thoughtful, that is reflective and compassionate, even though there is hostility to them around them. The times and even the names that have changed but from our birth in 1896, we have held passionately and deeply to these core beliefs and to the God that fuels them. So it's no wonder, as I thought about this commencement chapel, that I was drawn to these eight verses in Micah that capture our mission as a university and as a seminary. Micah tells us in chapter 6, verse 2, that God is fed up. He's tired of it. He's tired of watching a people walk further and further from him and the things that matter. And he's most fed up with those self-congratulatory people of faith that should know better. God's intent in this passage is to introduce them to once again the possibility of a life lived in passionate desire for the things of God. He reminds them in verse 4 and 5 that he's kept his end of the relationship covenant. They have been the ones that have chosen to walk from him. And then he hits them with a barrage of questions. What have I done with you? How have I burdened you? Sounds like a parent. Do you, do you think that all you're doing matters 
Do you think that it matters that you come with burnt offerings, with year-old cows, a thousand rams, with rivers of oil? To those empty institutional commitments that religion has become impotent and empty around, God, through the prophet Micah, asks, do you really think that those institutional commitments are all that matters? That they hold any power? And then all of a sudden, with a thundering voice, he asks a question that he knows they know the answer to. It's like he throws down the gauntlet. You want to know what I want? You know what I require. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. It's God's way of proposing an alternative imagination for what is currently taking place. Three dimensions of life that are interrelated and, live, and if lived out, if you want, are the heart of the Christian faith. Act justly. When we grasp on to faith in Jesus Christ, this faith, this personal encounter, brings with it a social responsibility that cannot be avoided. We are called to act justly. To see ourselves in relationship to others, to respect the rights of others, even over our own rights. It assumes a perspective of life where a balance is struck between having and sharing. A balance to life that is more healthy, a balance in which all can share in. It's a call to a dimension of living that passionately will not accept the status quo. It's a call that says, and we hope that we implant in you when you leave, that this may be the way that it is, but this is not the way it should be. And to do this in every place that we live, it's highly uncomfortable, it's highly inconvenient, but it is the way of God. It is the call to see the others and not just simply myself. Love mercy. To love mercy builds on this, or tenderly, as one translation says. It speaks of a people determined to do good with people. It again speaks of how we see others. To love tenderly, let me suggest, is to love with the awareness of the capacity that others have to be broken, to be lost, and in need. I often wonder if the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, is not the profound modeling of what Jesus is telling us we should be. To know the brokenness and the pain of sin and others in, in society because you actually know them. They are not at arm's length, but they are actively part of your lives. They're actively part of who you see and who you love. Dr. Douglas Webster, who used to be a theology professor here at Tyndale, used to say, you cannot do theology without faces. To love mercy means that you cannot act as a cranky prophet, as a follower of Jesus Christ, 
although many do. This is the driving force of evangelism and and acts of justice by followers of Jesus. Brueggemann says that the Hebrew word for love mercy literally means to love tenaciously, intensely, determined, passionately holding on. To love with the kind of love that God has shown us. The hymn writer wrote it, O love that will not let me go. To walk humbly with your God. The first two requirements Micah unpacks for us are honorable aspirations. But now Micah tells us how they are possible and what will give them transformative power. It's to walk humbly with our God. It's a statement of perspective. It is to understand what makes it possible to walk humbly with your God. In an institution such as Tyndale, this idea of walking humbly with God should eliminate the possibility of intellectual superiority and posturing. It should eliminate musical, sorry about this, divaship, relational or aesthetic one-upmanship, or the fact that you have a particular gift that was planted in you by God, which if you realize that it is implanted with you by God, instead enables you to walk humbly with God rather than make yourself feel superior or better than others. It's knowing where it comes from. It makes all the difference when you understand that. All truth is God's truth. All gifts are God's gifts. Kuiper says there's not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's mine. It's not ourself, Paul says in the New Testament, but it is God at work in us. Well, these are the core values to our educational mission to the place that you have come. And we believe deeply that this is not enough. You must live humbly with your God. You must live it out. Our namesake, William Tyndale, showed us the way. He was a man of great intellect, able to speak seven languages, and had an adept proficiency in ancient Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts and disciplined life could have taken him a long way in the church at that time had he not had one compulsion to do justice. He held a single-minded purpose to teach English men and women the good news, the justification of faith, and he wanted them to be able to read the scriptures in their mother tongue, English. And this became Tyndale's life passion, to translate the New Testament into English. But it was a time of power and of hiddenness, and the society, the Church of Christendom, did not want that English translation. In 1523, his passion was ignited. And in that year, he sought permission and funds from the Bishop of London to translate the New Testament. The bishop denied his request, And further queries convinced Tyndale that the project wouldn't take place in England. 
So he went to some of the free cities of Europe in 1525. His New Testament emerged, this first translation from Greek into English. And it was quickly smuggled into England where it received a less than enthusiastic response from the authorities, the king. The authorities were furious and they began to hatch a plan to silence Tyndale. During that time, even before Tyndale had given himself to acts of mercy, while he was translating this, he continued to give himself to acts of mercy and justice because, as he said, my part is for Christ and what he has called me to. Listen to this. On Mondays, he visited other religious refugees from England. On Saturdays, he walked Antwerp streets seeking ministry to the poor. On Sundays, he dined in merchants' homes, reading scripture before and after dinner, and dialoguing with them about the faith. No one was sure who betrayed him. A man named Henry Phillips is often referred to, but no one knows for sure. But he was lured into the arms of soldiers, put on trial for heresy of translating the Bible into English. In early August 1536, Tyndale was condemned as a heretic, degraded from the priesthood, and delivered to the secular authorities for punishment. On Friday, October 6, after local officials took their seats, Tyndale was brought to the cross in the middle of the town square and given a, given a chance to recant. He refused. The English historian John Fox said he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Then he was bound to the beam. Both an iron chain and a rope were put around his neck, and he was burned at the stake. That's our heritage, and that's our name. So welcome to Tyndale. <laughs> a university and a seminary with a rich 120-some years history. A university and a seminary that is named for William Tyndale, who lived out with passion and purpose what the Lord requires of us. A university and seminary that seeks to nurture the critical minds and deep character and a vibrant faith. And to see our alumni moving out into the community and the workplace in the way that its namesake did. So that we might do justice, we might love mercy, and we might walk humbly with our God. Amen.